Okay, today we are in Genesis chapter 41. We're kind of in the middle of the chapter. The story of uh, Joseph's appearance before Pharaoh and his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams and the subsequent events. This uh, particular recording of this lesson is a little different than usual. For those of you who are listening uh, to it by a CD or uh, or listening to it over the internet, uh, I should give an explanation that we had uh, when I first taught this lesson uh, to the class uh, here at Trinity. Uh, we had a difficulty with the recording. I, I don't know exactly what the problem was, but we were unable to was unable to uh, salvage the recording, so I'm re-recording this lesson for your sake. So I'm not doing this in front of a live class, so we won't have the interaction that you normally hear, which probably actually will make it easier for you to listen to this study than uh, to this particular study, since there's uh, no uh, class uh, participation or interaction. But uh, I did want to uh, to at least uh, make this uh, material available for you if you're trying to listen through the entire series on Genesis or through this section of Genesis. Uh, I want to make sure that this is available, uh, that this recording is available for you. So, so we are re-recording this uh, particular lesson, uh, especially for your sakes. Uh, but as I said, we are in Genesis chapter 41, and in the uh, previous our previous lesson last week, we looked at the first uh, 13 or 14 verses. Actually, we just just barely touched on verse 14. So today I want to pick up with verse 14 and go down through uh, verse uh, 28 or so. And uh, so actually today, in today's lesson, we're going to look at Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams or dream, if you will. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but we're going to interrupt in the middle of his interpretation just because there's so much material we can't cover it all in one lesson. So actually, verse 28 is not the end of his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, really, but he, he gives more instructions to Pharaoh and, and more of the interpretation or understanding as we go on. So we'll cover that, uh, Lord willing, next week. But before we look at our verses for today... Uh, let's take a few minutes to go back and kind of think on about the things that we covered last week in the first 13 or so verses of chapter 41. And uh, you'll remember that uh, in uh, as the chapter began, uh, it had been uh, it had been two full years since Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the two officials in prison. He had asked the cupbearer to remember him before Pharaoh and to plead his case uh, to Pharaoh. And he had successfully interpreted their dreams. And so the cupbearer did, in fact, uh, was, in fact, restored to his position. The chief baker was executed. And uh, but the chief cupbearer, even though Joseph had successfully interpreted his dream, correctly interpreted his dream precisely, the way things turned out, and they did turn out that way, even though that's true, he didn't remember Joseph. He didn't remember to plead Joseph's case to Pharaoh. And we talked all about that when we were looking at that part of the story. So we won't go back into it now. But, but now it's been two full years. And he has forgotten Joseph. But of course, the Lord has not forgotten Joseph. And... Uh, 
And so uh, here at the end of two full years, then Pharaoh has these dreams and uh, the first 13 verses detail the dreams that he has. And uh, and actually, one of the things that we noticed uh, last week when we looked at this part of the passage is that uh, there there seem to be two dreams, but but the narrator refers to them as one dream. Uh, Pharaoh refers to them as one dream. And even Joseph stresses that even though they appear to be two dreams or there seem to be two dreams, he says they're really one. In other words, there's really just one message being conveyed here through these two dreams. And we'll uh, think some more about that uh, today. But. One of the things that we noticed in in those first uh, few verses is how many times the narrator uses the word behold. Uh, there's uh, about uh, about six times there in those first few verses, first seven verses or so in verse uh, one of 41. He says, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. Verse two, he says, and lo, from the Nile, that word lo there is the same word for Behold, verse three, then behold, uh, seven other cows came up uh, and in uh, verse five, he says, and behold, seven ears of grain. And verse six, then behold, seven ears uh, of uh, grain thin and scorched by the east wind. And then in verse seven, it says he woke up and behold, it was a dream. And actually that repetition of the word behold occurs again in the passage we're going to look at today. And the thing we talked about last week is that that is that the, the thing that the narrator is doing is he's trying to he's trying to draw us in to the narration. He's trying to draw us into the story and uh, and 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 help us kind of feel the story itself. And so this this repetition of the word behold is is to to paint for us the vividness of the dream. So. So what we want to understand is is that is that Pharaoh is as he has this dream, it's very vivid to him. It's not you know sometimes you have a dream and you you wake up and and it's kind of vague and you can't remember exactly what happened. It's a little curious. Maybe you're a little wonder a little bit about it or you think a little bit, but you can't really put it all together. But this dream is really vivid. It's very real to him. And even though the situation is very bizarre, very strange and very unnatural. Uh, you know, cows don't eat cows and heads of grain don't eat. Heads. So in some respects, it's very unnatural. Yet in Pharaoh's mind, it's very real. It's very vivid. And so he wakes up and he's very startled by this uh, dream. And then, of course, he calls uh, he calls for the magicians uh, to interpret the dream. And there they were unable to interpret his dreams and uh, and, and we talked about that, uh, the fact that the dreams, as we look at them, as we see them, we understand we're not even we're not even uh, Egyptians from the second or third century B.C. Uh, but we know enough about Egypt to know that these dreams are loaded with Egyptian symbolic uh, symbols and and emblems and 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 concepts. So. For example, the Nile River is, of course, a, a dominant uh, symbol within these dreams and has profound significance uh, to, uh, to to any Egyptian living in those days, probably even any Egyptian living today. The idea of the cows are uh, they are an emblem of of, uh, of uh, an 
an Egyptian goddess who represents the fertility of the land and, and agriculture and that sort of thing, as do the heads of grain. These are all very, very common symbols within the Egyptian culture or the Egyptian milieu in which this story takes place. And, and yet these Egyptian uh, magicians or priests or wise men are unable to interpret it. And it's even, it's even more striking, not only because the dreams are loaded with these significant Egyptian symbols that, that they would seem, that they would understand, but, but even in, in, uh, in addition to that, when we, when we learn that these Egyptian um, magicians or priests are actually trained, they've actually gone to school to learn how to interpret dreams. And there was actually a, there was actually a place where they would go and they would study these uh, magical arts and they would study the priestly uh, rituals and that sort of thing. But one of the things that they would study was the interpretation of dreams and also the reading and understanding of hieroglyphics and things like that. But in, when it came to the interpretation of dreams, they actually had books. They had what they called dream books. And these dream books laid out the significance of the various symbols and the significance of, of various puns and things that you might encounter in your dreams. And so, so these people were trained. They were skilled in the interpretation of dreams. And Pharaoh's dreams are loaded with this, all this profound Egyptian symbolism. And yet these people are unable to interpret these dreams. And, and, and one of the things that we contemplated as we looked at that passage uh, last week, one of the things we contemplated that, that it is, it is, it is uh, God who, who makes things visible or understandable or explainable to us. God is the one who reveals things to us and God in His prerogative also can hide things from us. And so God has hidden these things. Even though as we look at it, we think, well, these, why can't these guys interpret these dreams? It seems pretty straightforward to us. Of course, we have the advantage of Joseph's interpretation. But even aside from that, it seems fairly straightforward. It seems like they could have figured some things out from this dream, but apparently they've been unable to do so. And that's because God has hidden it from them. And God has hidden it from them because He wants Joseph to be the one to interpret it. So God is working not only in Joseph's life to get Joseph where he wants him, but God is also working in the lives of these pagan priests and magicians and wise men. God is also working in, in their life in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in Joseph's life. So, so we can draw confidence and encourage from that one. When, when God has a purpose for us, when God is wanting to do something in our lives, He's not only working in our lives, but He's working in other people's lives as well to, to do or accomplish what He wants to accomplish in our life. And it doesn't even matter. They don't have to be believers. They can be pagans. They can be unbelievers. And God can work in their lives and God does work in their lives in order to move us into the place where He wants us to be. And so we can take a great deal of confidence and encouragement from that. Well, uh, then uh, an, another thing that was striking in, in our lesson last week is uh, when the uh, cupbearer then finally 
remembers Joseph and then remembers to mention him, uh, mention Joseph to Pharaoh, uh, and and he recounts Joseph's interpretation of those two dreams that the two officials had, the cupbearer and the baker. He points out that these two dreams each had their own interpretation. And one of the things that, that, that is uh, notable in Joseph's interpretation of the officials is that, is that they had two separate dreams and those two separate dreams had things that were similar and things that were different about them. But what we notice about Joseph is that he was able, when he looked at the similarities and he looked at the differences between the dreams that these two officials had, he was able to have the discernment. God gave him the discernment to see that what was important in those dreams was not what was similar about them, but what was different about them. And he emphasizes the different one of one. One of you is going to be restored to your position and the other is going to be executed. And and Joseph is able to discern that from the differences and the only similarity that that's common between the two of them that's important to the interpretation is, of course, the, the feature of the three days. But but Joseph discerns that with the, both the similarities and the differences, it's the differences that really are important in giving the proper interpretation to these two dreams. Now, when he interprets Pharaoh's dream, dreams or dreams singular, however you look at it, but let's, for now, let's think of them as two dreams. When he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh's two dreams also have similarities and have differences. When he interpreted the official's dreams, though they had similarities and differences, it was the differences that were important to note and really uh, determine this, what, how each dream was to be interpreted. But here, though they have similarities and differences, it's the similarities that are important. And Joseph has the discernment to know that although it was the differences in the other situation that were important, in this situation, it's the similarities that are important. And so he says they are essentially one dream. And, and this just reveals to us how, how Joseph is not kind of locked into some kind of, of, of human method of interpreting dreams, but, but the Spirit of God is guiding and directing Joseph as he interprets the dream. So these are some of the things that we noticed and talked about last week. Well, uh, we want to pick up the story uh, then in verse 14, and we'll read down through verse uh, 28 in Genesis 41, uh, continuing the story. And this really is now the kind of the watershed event in the life of Joseph. This is where you know, we've, we've, we've uh, followed Joseph through his whole story since about chapter 37. And we've, we've seen uh, uh, kind of one unfortunate turn, if you want to use that word, one unfortunate turn, uh, turn of events after another, uh, one difficulty after another in his life. And he just kind of keeps going down and down and down. You know, he's, his, brothers, his brothers hate him and then his brothers 
betray him and they sell him into slavery and he ends up in Potiphar's house and then he ends up in prison and then he and he hopes that that the cupbearer is going to remember him but the cupbearer forgets him and it's just it's just been one one bleak situation after another in the life of Joseph this however is the turning point this is the watershed event in the life of Joseph where his circumstances begin to change by the providence of God so that God can move him into the place that he wants him to be. And so let's pick it up in verse 14 and read down. He says, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet, when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as they were before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears, withered and thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then he goes on from there and, and uh, further uh, explains the interpretation. But well, we'll stop uh, there for now. So in picking up the story then in verse 14, we have Joseph. And if we can just kind of, if, if you will, just kind of put yourself in this position. Uh, just kind of try to put yourself there with Joseph. And here he is. He's in the prison. This is just another day in prison. He's, he's been there now for several years. We know it's been at least two years that he's been there because it was two years ago that he interpreted the dreams of the two officials. However, you know, we expect that he was also in prison for several years before that. So... So he's been in prison for a long time, and of course he has his duties. He's he's kind of the steward, or he's in charge of the he's the, he's the prisoner who's in charge of all the other prisoners, and he's been given that responsibility. But this is just another day in the life of Joseph. He'd rather be anywhere other than where he is. 
He's been faithful where he is. He's tried to honor God with his life and and uh, in his faithfulness in his position. And God has been with him and God has uh, blessed him in some ways, but he's still in prison. And this has been his life now for several years. Every day, he just wakes up and here he is unjustly in prison. And he goes about his prison duties and fulfills his prison duties. And at the end of the day, he lays back down and goes to sleep in prison. And this is Joseph's life. And this has been Joseph's life for many, many, many days. Weeks, months, and years. And then... Then we have this day, and Joseph gets up on this day just like he gets up every other day, and he just goes about his life. And by now, he's probably given up much hope that the cupbearer will ever remember him. And 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 I don't think that Joseph has completely despaired. We have the verse in Psalms that tell us until tells us until the word of the Lord came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him, and it does. And, and Joseph had these dreams that he'd had uh, in his youth. And so, so I don't think he was completely hopeless or completely despairing. But there was no reason for Joseph to expect on this day that this day would be any different than any other day. But in fact, this day is different. Because this day is the watershed day in the life of Joseph. This is when... So circumstances change and God thrusts Joseph into the position where he wants him to be to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish through him in the years ahead. And it's going to be many years yet before. It's going to be another nine years before he actually is able to rescue his family and do the things that God has put him there to do. But, but this is the beginning here. This is the watershed event. This is where... This is where the tide turns, if you will, in the life of Joseph and turns for the better. But he doesn't know that. He just wakes up and it's just another day and he just goes about this day just doing the things that he's responsible to do and trying as best he can to be faithful to God. And then, you know, if you can kind of imagine it in your in your mind, and we don't know exactly how all this transpired, but it says they came hurriedly and they took him out of prison. And, and so you just get this picture of Joseph. He's there. He's going about his business or whatever. And then all of a sudden he hears this commotion and here come these officials from Pharaoh's court, probably uh, probably some of Pharaoh's guards or soldiers or whatever. Uh, they come and, and Joseph hears the commotion coming from outside of the prison and they come to the prison or to the dungeon and they grab Joseph and they just and they take him out hurriedly and they tell him to change his clothes and shave and get ready to beat because he's going before Pharaoh. And suddenly Joseph's life is turned and now he realizes he is going to be standing in a matter of moments. He's going to be standing before Pharaoh. And we read this story and we think about it and, and it excites us because of this, the, the, we've been waiting for this to happen. We've been waiting uh, for circumstances to change in the life of Joseph. And it's exciting to us how suddenly they change. And one of the things that's, that's encouraging to us 
when we read this story is how God is able to suddenly change circumstances to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And God is able to suddenly change. When we have suffered and we have struggled and we have been in a difficult situation for a long period of time, oftentimes it's very easy for us to despair. It's very easy for us to get discouraged. It's easy for us to sometimes think maybe, maybe, God, maybe there's some reason why God can't move. But God can move and He can move suddenly. Now, I wouldn't presume to tell you that if you're going through some difficult situation in your life and maybe it has dragged on for weeks or months or even for many years, I would not presume to tell you that, that it's going to change suddenly. And, and from this passage, we can say, well, God is going to change your circumstance suddenly. Now, He might. And oftentimes, He does. But what's important here is not, is, is not in, in applying this to the circumstances and the difficulties in your particular, your particular situation in your life. What's important here is not that we promise you from this passage or that I promise you from this passage that God is going to suddenly change your circumstance and one day you're going to wake up and it's all going to be different. But what is important is to realize that God can do that that God is capable of doing that because God is in charge. God is in control. God's providence is rules over every affair of your life. And God is able to turn your circumstance suddenly on a dime. He is able to turn it. And, and in some cases, that's exactly what He will do. But because He is able to turn your circumstance suddenly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, if you will, just because He is able to, if He does not change your circumstance suddenly, if He leaves you in that difficult situation for a long period of time and doesn't change it suddenly, or if He chooses to change it slowly, almost imperceptibly over a period of time, because we know He's capable of changing you suddenly or changing your situation suddenly, we can take confidence that what, the, that what He is doing, whether He's leaving you in your circumstance without changing it or whether He's changing your circumstance very slowly, that He's doing it because that's His plan. He's still in control. If He's not changing your situation suddenly, He's still in control. He's capable. He's capable. He's able to do what He wants to do to accomplish His purposes in your life. So you can take comfort from Joseph's story even if your situation doesn't change suddenly. And the comfort you take from it is just the knowledge that God is in control and He could change it suddenly. And if He doesn't change it suddenly, it's because He has a higher purpose. He has something greater He's wanting to do in your life or something greater He's wanting to do through your life, which is why He doesn't change it suddenly. But that being said, I can still promise you there is a time in your life when your life will suddenly change. And that is going to be at that point in your life 
when your life either ends or the Lord comes back. We, we see this idea of the suddenness with which God is going to change our circumstances ultimately. We see that very clearly in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus emphasizes that, doesn't he? And he's talking to the, to the Jews and over and over again, particularly as you get to the latter part of the Gospels, of each of the Gospels, you see this emphasis that Jesus gives uh, on, on the suddenness with which the Son of Man is going to come and your circumstances are going to be changed. And so Scripture uses the analogy of the days of Sodom and the days of Noah. Now, I, I personally think that we get the wrong message when we read that emphasis in Scripture. When the, when the Lord says to us, as it was in the days of Noah, or as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, oftentimes what we think about is, and then he says, so it will be when the coming of the Son of Man. And, and what we tend to focus on is we know how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah were, and we know how wicked it was in the days of Noah. And so we think, oh, well, it's going to be as wicked in the, it's going to be as wicked when the, just before the Lord returns as it was in the days of Noah. It's going to be as wicked when before, right before the Lord comes as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not what Jesus is trying to teach us. Uh, that's not the, point of that analogy. The point of the analogy, for example, when he says as it was in the days of Noah, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, what were they doing? They were just going through life. They were doing the everything, the everyday things of life, the things that just constitute our, our life on this earth. Eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. That's just life. It goes on. And, and we just live life ordinary. And every day just is just another repetition of the day before of eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Okay? And then suddenly the flood comes and they're all washed away. In one day, the judgment of the world. And so it was with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. Of course, they were doing a lot of stuff. They were doing wicked stuff. They were doing horrible, evil things. And that's true. They were doing all those things. But the, the, uh, the point is that, that they were just living life in an ordinary, everyday way. They were just living life. And then suddenly comes the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and so the, the point that Jesus is making is you need to be ready because your life is going to suddenly change and, and the Son of Man is going to come back at a time when you do not think He will. And, and the thing that's striking about Joseph and Joseph's story is his life changes on, a, on one day just suddenly without him knowing it. His life changes. But what's striking about Joseph is that he was faithful to God all the way up every day. He was faithful to God. So he was ready for that change. And when that change came, Joseph was walking faithfully with God and he was ready he was ready in his character and he was ready in his mind and he was ready in his heart to speak God's word to Pharaoh because he'd been faithful and he was ready every day up to this point. He was ready for this day to change, this day to come, the day in which his life would be changed. And, and you and I have a day like that when our life is going to be changed. And we live 
in this life and we have difficulties and we have struggles and we, 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 we labor and we toil and we get tired and we struggle with, with conflicts and we struggle with fears and we struggle with all these different things, but there's going to come a day when that all suddenly ends. There's going to come a day when we're, when we're just going to lay all this just instantly. You're not, you're not, going, to, you're not going to know when it's going to happen. It might happen the day you die. For some of us, maybe all of us here, it's, it'll happen the day we die. But, but if the Lord comes back before we die, then it'll happen the day the Lord returns. Just suddenly, in a moment, all of that toil and all that labor and all that agony and all that suffering and all that conflict is all suddenly going to be laid aside. And one day we're going to get up and we're going to be foreigners, as the Scripture says, foreigners living in a foreign land, as aliens in a strange land. That's how we're going to be living. And then all of a sudden, we're going to be standing in the presence of the King of Kings. And the thing that... There's just a... The Lord just gave me, a, in my own experience, in my own life, He gave me a... A, a powerful illustration of this principle. My uh, my own mother uh, loved the Lord. She tried to serve the Lord her whole life, and she was I, I, she was very good at at working with children and teaching children. I have no idea how many children over the course of her life. She had the opportunity to influence for the kingdom of God. I have no idea how many children uh, she personally led to Christ or influenced to them so that they came to Christ. But there will be, no doubt, many people in heaven who were there because of the ministry of my mother to them when they were just little children. Certainly, I'm a classic example of that. But, But mom had issues in life and she had a lot of things she struggled with and she grew up in a difficult situation and and that affected her outlook on life and so pretty much for most of her life mom always felt like she wasn't doing enough for God or she was failing the Lord and and she always struggled with this well uh, towards the uh, towards the end of her life they were living here uh, in Norman and uh, and uh, she was not well. Uh, she, she just had a number of health issues. And uh, so one one Sunday afternoon, Dad called me and he said, you know, Mom's not feeling well today. She's, she's sick today. And, uh, you know, you want to come over and see if you can kind of encourage her and whatever. So 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 I went over to visit with Mom. And I, uh, so I was there at the house and she was uh, she was actually lying in bed. Uh, back in the bedroom. So I went back and sat in the bedroom with her and, and just visited with her for, I don't know, a while, half an hour, an hour or so. But she was, again, in one of these times when she was really struggling, feeling like her life had been a failure. And I was trying to encourage her and, 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 and encourage her to see that she had not been a failure, that she had, she had served the Lord and the Lord honored that in her children and had honored it in other ways. And I tried to encourage her, but I just wasn't having much success, which was kind of a typical uh, situation for me. And I just wasn't having much success in encouraging her. But, so I visited with her for a while and then I went back home. I lived, uh, uh, I lived over close to the campus area and they lived on the east side of town. And I, I went back home 
And when I got home, I no sooner walked in the door than the phone rang and it was dad. And he said, uh, mom has stopped breathing. And so I ran back out and got in the car and drove back across town. And by the time I got to the other side of town, uh, of course, the police were there. The ambulance was there. And I walked in the house and, you know, the met paramedics and the policemen were standing there, etc. And, and mom was gone. She had the body was there in the bed, but she was gone. I'd just been talking to her 15, 20 minutes earlier. And so I came in the room and 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 there was her body and I leaned over and I kissed her goodbye and and uh, and then, of course, went out uh, to the other room to talk with Dad. And <clears throat> But the thing that struck me as I reflected on that over the next several days is here was Mom who for all her life had felt like she wasn't doing enough for God and felt inadequate and felt like she was failing God and all that sort of thing. And she had all she had all these health issues and she was struggling physically and stuff. And her life was just very difficult. And when she woke up that morning and began her day, it was just another hard day for her. And she would never have guessed that before that day was out, she would be standing before her Savior and hearing those coveted words, well done, good and faithful servant. And for the first time in her life, she would understand. For the first time in her life, she understood how much God was pleased with her. And that's the way it's going to be with us, folks. We're going to get up one day and it's just going to be life as usual and it may be a good day for us. It may be a bad day for us. It may be, but, 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 in, but even our best days are days of struggle and days of difficulty and days of conflicts and days of suffering and days of illness and all those things and days of separation from loved ones and all that sort of thing. Even our best days have some, are tinged with those, those aspects of our fallen world and we live in that reality every day and one day you're going to get up and it's going to be like that. And then in a moment, in a twinkling, you will be standing before the Lord. And one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be an alien and a stranger in a foreign land. And before the end of that day, you will be standing before the King. And this verse Verse 14 of Genesis 41 just reminds us of how quickly, how suddenly our situation is going to change. And it should fill us with hope. Well, 
then Pharaoh goes on. Uh, he, he, then he, Pharaoh addresses Joseph and he says, listen, I had these dreams and I can't get anybody to explain them to me, but I heard about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And what does Joseph say? Joseph answers Pharaoh and he says two things. First, he says, it's not in me. Then he says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable interpretation. Now, now one of the things we discover about Joseph, and it becomes clear in the things that Pharaoh will say to him later, is Joseph has the Spirit of God on him. That, that Joseph is, <laughs> if, if we can use a, a New Testament concept, Joseph is gifted by God. He has this spirit or this gift of the interpretation of dreams. And Joseph is a man who, who is a, a spiritual man, if we could say that. He's a man who walks in fellowship with God. And so Joseph is the example of a spiritual man exercising spiritual gifts. Okay? Now, I say that in that way. You know, you might say, well, you know, uh, don't, on, on, isn't everybody who exercises spiritual gifts a spiritual man? Well, Corinthians, Paul makes clear in Corinthians, no, that's not the case. It's possible for a believer to be carnal and still exercise the gifts that God has irrevocably given to him. Okay. Now, whether you believe you get one gift or multiple gifts uh, when you get saved, or, or if you believe a believer or a Christian has one spiritual gift or has more than one spiritual gift, uh, I tend to think that, that a believer could have more than one. And many or most believers, I think, probably do have more than one spiritual gift. But, but whatever you believe about that, one of the things that's clear is that God gives these spiritual gifts to all believers. Every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit to, to carry out their function within the body of Christ. But it's also possible for a believer, that's, this is clear from Corinthians, it's also possible for a believer to be carnal. That is, to not walk in the Spirit. And yet, it's very clear that these Corinthians who had gifts like tongues and things like this, uh, speaking in tongues and interpretation, they had these various gifts, that even though they were carnal, they were still exercising these gifts. So, in other words, it's possible for a carnal Christian, an unspiritual Christian, if you will, to exercise his spiritual gifts. Now, he may not be very effective at it. He may not accomplish much. But it is possible. So that's why I add the qualifier here. That Joseph is a spiritual man exercising his spiritual gifts. So he's gifted by God from interpretation, but we see by his response to Pharaoh his spirit of humility. Okay. There are actually two things that we notice about a spiritual man exercising his spiritual gifts in this example of, of Joseph. And that is, first of all, we see, that we see his humility. A truly spiritual person exercising their spiritual gift acknowledges that it's God and not them. They recognize that it's God's Spirit working in them and God's Spirit working through them. So they don't take credit to themselves. That doesn't, that doesn't mean if, if, 
if somebody's exercising has exercised their spiritual gift and it's ministered to you in some way and you go up to them and say you know you you were exercising your gift you were doing this and it really encouraged me and it really blessed me it doesn't mean that they always that they have to always say like joseph said to pharaoh here well you know it's not in me it's god you know, i mean most christians know that you don't we don't have to remind them of that unless it seems for some reason they've lost sight of that. But so, you know, we don't have to expect a spiritual person would always say when they're when someone expresses gratitude to them for something they've done and they exercise their gift. We don't necessarily have to expect them to always say, well, don't talk to me you know, talk to God or thank God or whatever. You know, that, that is a good response. But but what's more important is their heart. Is their heart one that they recognize this is not of me? I can't do this of myself. It's God. And the spiritual person exercising their spiritual gift recognizes that gift is from God. It's not of them. The second thing that strikes me about Joseph is he says, God will give to Pharaoh a favorable answer. So even though Joseph recognizes it's not of him and he's humble in the exercise of his gift, he has confidence in God to work through him to utilize his gift and to enable him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. So he's he's going he 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 knows it's not of him, but he has a complete confidence in God that God is going to give that interpretation and he expects it's going to be through him. He's going to give the interpretation. It's going to be Joseph who's going to understand. And it's going to be Joseph who says to Pharaoh what his interpretation is. Joseph knows that comes from God, but he's absolutely confident that God is going to do that. So, so we see two things in the spiritual person exercising their spiritual gift. Is that they are humble. They acknowledge it's not of God, but they have confidence. They have utilize this gift before they've seen God use it before they've seen God speak through them before or work through them before or work through their gift and and they have confidence that God is going to do it again so but it's sometimes it's easy to miss to misunderstand that confidence that a spiritual person has in God to use their gift it's sometimes easy to misinterpret that or misunderstand that and think it's pride. But if they're truly a spiritual person who acknowledges the gift that's coming from them, then then it's not pride. It's just a confidence in God. So so don't don't conclude that a spiritual person exercising their spiritual gift, if they're truly humble, then they're not going to really know whether or not God's going to use them. They have, they know that God has given them the gift. They understand God's given them the gift. And they have seen God use this gift before. And so they expect, they have this expectation that he will do it again. They have confidence. And that's what we see in Joseph. We see a humble man who has confidence that God will use him. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not presumption. It's just a confidence in God that comes from his faith in God and his experience of God working in his life. And so, with that answer to Pharaoh, then, of course, Pharaoh responds by telling him his dream. Now, what's uh, striking about him, this dream, you'll notice 
what the narrator does is he, is he repeats the story of the dream. He's already told the narrator has always t- already told us what Joseph, what Pharaoh has dreamed, but now we have Pharaoh telling us what he's dreamed. So the net result of that is the story is told twice: the narrator's telling of the dream, and then Pharaoh's telling of the dream. But when we look at Pharaoh's telling of the dream, we we notice some differences not that not that he not that it's a different dream or whatever but pharaoh adds something as he tells the dream that's not in the narrator's telling of the dream did you notice that and so if you look at it if you if you look at the uh, at pharaoh's telling of the dream you'll notice uh uh, let me find the verse here. Uh, the first thing he says is, uh, he says uh, in verse 19, Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I have never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. That last part of the sentence there wasn't in the narrator's telling of a dream. This is Pharaoh's commentary on the dream. So he's telling his dream and then he adds this little commentary. I saw these ugly cows. He says, these cows were uglier than anything that I have ever seen. Uh, and then in verse 21 it says, And yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. That also is Pharaoh's commentary. That wasn't in the first telling of the dream. That wasn't in the narrator's telling of the dream earlier in the chapter. This is Pharaoh's commentary. He He's telling Joseph, okay, I saw them eat. And the thing that was noticeable to me, notable to me about them eating these other cows is that after they'd eaten them, you couldn't tell. And, and, and so, as we compare these two tellings of the dream, we see the second telling, Pharaoh's telling, has these two added commentaries or comments about his dream that weren't in the first telling. Now, why does the narrator give us that? He gives us that so it gives us some insight into Pharaoh's mentality. That Pharaoh is not just simply re- repeating by rote this dream, but, but it has struck him. There are certain things that have impressed him about the dream. And the things that impress him about the dream is that these are not just ugly cows, they're the ugliest he's ever seen. And it's not just that these cows ate the fat cows, but even after they'd eaten the fat cows, it didn't do them any good. Now, the significance of that will be given to us when we get into the rest of the interpretation uh, in next, next week's lesson. But, but what I want to point out to you at this point simply is that this is, these are the things that struck Pharaoh. These are the things that stuck out to Pharaoh. These are the things that he, as he tells his dream, he wants to comment on. He wants to add this color, if you will, to this telling of the dream as he tells it to Joseph. Because these are the things that particularly caught his attention. Not just that the cows were ugly, but how ugly they were. And not just that the, the cows ate the other cows, but that it didn't do them any good. Okay? And the point is that, that what strikes Pharaoh, that, that provokes from him added comment about his dream, is not the fat cows and how beautiful they were and how good looking they were or these, 
beautiful heads of grain and how beautiful it wasn't the positive aspects of his dream that strike him but it's the negative things it's the it's the dark aspects of his dream in other words the reason that Pharaoh is so troubled with not knowing the interpretation of his dream is because he so clearly sees there is some evil portent in this dream. There's something evil in this dream. And I don't understand what that is. And I need to know. And so he, and so he represents his dream or tells his dream to Joseph. Now, then uh, Joseph, of course, begins to give the interpretation. And Joseph's... Uh, you'll notice uh, two things about Joseph giving the interpretation. One, he sets, out, he sets out a framework for understanding the dreams. And there's, there's two things that he says that set the framework for his interpretation and he repeats each one of them. Okay? So... So, Joseph says um, in verse 25, Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. And then you'll notice in verse 26, the end of the verse there, says the dreams are one and the same. He repeats this. He stresses to Pharaoh, your dreams are one and the same. This is what we were talking about before. That with the interpretation of the officials, it was their diff- the differences of the dream that were important to Joseph now, he understands that the, it's the similarities of the dream. They're actually one dream. They're one message that's given to you. And one commentator suggests, and, and, and I think in the text there's even a bit of a hint at this, although it's not clear, that it may be the fact that Pharaoh, the, the, that Pharaoh had two dreams that were really one dream, but they looked like two dreams because he, he dreamt and then he woke up and then he went back to sleep and he dreamt again. Okay? And Pharaoh calls it a dream, singular. The narrator, even though it translates in our translation, it translates it uh, in a couple places, dreams. Actually, in the original Hebrew, it's singular, dream. So the narrator calls it a dream. Pharaoh calls it a dream. And now we see that Joseph emphasizes it's one. Now, in our translation, again, you notice in the italics, it adds one and the same. But the and the same is added by the translators for clarity. What he says actually in the Hebrew is, your dreams are one. Okay? Meaning there, there, there's one message here. Okay? And Joseph discerns this and he emphasizes this. So, in other words, one of the determining factors for the interpretation is understanding that this is one dream. It's not two dreams. It's not two messages. It's one thing that's being communicated to you. The second thing you'll notice in verse 25, he says, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then down in verse 28, it says, It is as I have spoken to you. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So the first interpretive principle is it's one dream. The second interpretive principle really kind of has two parts to it, is it's God has spoken to you. But it's God has spoken to you about what He will do. In other words, it's about something in the future. It's not a dream about something right now. It's not some revelation about some person or, or, uh, or something uh, that you need to know. But rather, it's a, it's a message about what's going to happen in the future. Very soon in the future, but it's going to happen in the future. 
And so this is the framework by which you have to understand this dream. The framework is it's one dream, one message. Don't get confused because it comes in two parts. It's one message. Understand that. The second thing is understand it's about the future and God has told you what the future brings, what the future holds. And then he sets out to interpret the dream and he explains that the seven animals, the seven cows and the seven heads of grain represent seven years and then the seven lean cows and the seven thin parched grain, heads of grain represent seven years of famine. Okay. And, and, and so he begins then to lay out the, the framework of his uh, of, of the interpretation of the dream. And we'll go into more of that uh, in our in our next lesson next week. <clears throat> but in in wrapping up the study, the thing I want to reflect on here is. How. Marvelous it is. That the almighty God who knows the end from the beginning, the Almighty God who knows and understands not only everything that's happened in the past, but everything to us, our past, time is irrelevant to Him, but also everything that will happen in our future. God knows all of that. And that God in His love and in His condescension to man has chosen to come to Pharaoh and to give Pharaoh, a pagan king, a dream about the future. And he does that because he wants to work through Joseph to keep alive Joseph's family. But God does not only want to keep alive alive Joseph's family, he wants to keep alive the Egyptians. And he wants to keep alive all those countries around Egypt that are going to go through this experience. And so God comes to Pharaoh and he communicates to Pharaoh in a dream about the future. And I'm just struck, as I oftentimes am, I'm just struck by the fact that God, when he wants to communicate with us, is fully capable of doing so. There are people, there are even Christians who think that God is so far up there and He's so great and He's so incomprehensible that we can't ever really understand Him. Well, there are some things about God we can't understand. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed are given to us and to our children to live by. And... And, and so while it is true that, that God is beyond our understanding, He surpasses our understanding, that doesn't mean, and, and some people conclude that because God is so great that we can't know anything for sure about God. But we can know some things for sure about God. While there are some things about God that we can't know and we don't know and we don't understand, God has condescended to communicate to people, both saved and unsaved, about Himself. He's revealed Himself, and so there are certain things that we do know about God, 
And there are certain things we can understand about God because God is fully capable of disclosing Himself and revealing Himself to us and He has done so through His Word and He has done through done so through the incarnation of the living Word. God has revealed so many things about Himself. And so while there is much that we can understand about God, there is a great deal that we can because God is able and willing and does in fact reveal Himself and communicate with mankind. That's pretty remarkable. And so here we have this pagan king. He worships other gods. He worships false idols. And yet God, in His grace, condescends to come down to Pharaoh and give Pharaoh a dream. Two dreams, or one dream, two dreams with one interpretation, or one dream, however you want to look at it. He gives him this dream because God wants to speak to Pharaoh. And if God wants to speak to Pharaoh, He can speak to Pharaoh. And if God wants to speak to you, He can speak to you. Well, next week we'll go on with the rest of the uh, rest of uh, Joseph's interpretation and then Pharaoh's response. So we'll pick it up again next week.